It takes courage to open the door to your past to ensure that the door to the future is open for others. You are courageous. Welcome to the Dr. Riley Show. So, in the words of Dr. Riley, what does sexual trauma mean to you? Well, um, to me, sexual trauma means an invasion of one's space, a robbing of one's innocence, a interaction that is unwarranted, unwanted, and it just takes from you from a place where it was meant to be special, sacred, and honored by the one you love. Well, could you share some of your backstory with the audience? Well, um, my first <laughs> Sexual traumatic experience happened when I was about seven, eight years old. Um, like most families, you would send your child to the South for the summer, and I was one of those families. And I used to spend my, some of my summers with my great-grandmother. Um, I loved her dearly. She used to make biscuits from scratch, and so I used to you know, um, be there with her as she did it. I enjoyed watching the whole process. Um, and she had a yard with grass and I was allowed to play in the yard from the time I was little. Um, never to go past the gate. So I'm sure some of you understood what it meant not to go past the gate in the yard. But the older I got, I was able to go past the gate. I was able to play um, past the yard. Um, play in the playground, which was across the street. And then eventually, um, I was allowed to go around the corner to play with a neighbor. Um, but was strictly told to stay in the yard of the neighbor. So I would play in the yard with the neighbor. And then one day, um, his older siblings, and it was a guy that was playing with a little boy, and his older siblings invited me into the house. Now, I knew I wasn't supposed to go in there. Um, my great-grandmother made sure that I was very clear about what I was supposed to do, and I didn't want to disappoint her because I was allowed to go out of the yard. But they were older, and they were girls, and I was curious, so I went into his house with them, with my friend. He was also about seven or eight. We were about the same age. And when I went into the house, I remember exactly what I had on. I had on a hot pink shirt and a hot pink shorts against my brown skin. You know, hot pink was looking really, really cute. And when I went into the house, 
I can't tell you how I went from walking into the house to me winding up on the bed on my back with him over top of me. I don't remember that space of what happened, but I do remember the next moment laying on my back and him on top of me. My pink shorts were down, his shorts were down, and his older siblings had his older siblings had his penis in their hand with a tissue guiding it into my seven-year-old vagina. Um, <laughs> Take your time. I, um, I knew it was wrong, but I was seven. He was smiling. They were smiling, they were laughing, they were talking about how small his penis was and, you know, guided it into my vagina. And then they proceeded to, um, wow. Then they proceeded to instruct him about how to move his body um, while he was moving his private parts in and out of mine. But the funny thing is, is that something inside of me was like, wow, this feels really good. Even though I knew it was wrong, I, it, would, it felt good. And they were smiling. So they're smiling, they're laughing, he's smiling. I knew it was wrong. I shouldn't have been in his home. And then on the inside, there was a part of me that was like, this feels really good. So with those conflicting emotions, right, caught between it feeling good and knowing it's wrong, as you left that experience, that moment, what were your thoughts? If my grandmother finds out what I just did, I'm gonna be in so much trouble. I didn't even think about that being wrong, I just thought about my great-grandmother finding out, one, that I didn't follow her instructions because I left the, his yard. Two, I was in the house doing something that I knew I shouldn't have been doing, but I didn't really understand it. And so I never told anyone. I never told anybody because I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to see my great-grandmother anymore. And I loved visiting her. Um, and I didn't want to disappoint her, um, so I didn't tell. But I never left the yard ever again. She would ask me, you can go play in the playground on the swings. I never left the yard ever again. So if you weren't able to express it at the time, or if you felt more uncomfortable expressing it at the time, how were you able to process it? Um, I don't think I ever processed, processed it. I just um, let need, it, just you, forgot about it. Do you need us to take a break? No, no, I'm gonna push through this. Okay, great. I'm, a, I'm gonna do this because I'm sure that there are other women, um, as you can see from the season so far, that have experienced this. And this is the first time that I've spoken it aloud in such a public forum, so, even the reaction that I'm having is like, wow. Okay, please continue. Um, 
so yeah, so I didn't, I never, my grandma, my great grandmother's house was like a safe space for me. Like I loved it. I love the fact that I was leaving New York City to go to the South. I was leaving New York City from an apartment to go to a house in the South. It was just so much love there because what I was experiencing in my home was totally different than being with my great grandmother. I loved being with my great grandmother. So I didn't want to, one, break her heart and two, be found out and then have something that meant so much to me be taken away from me. So I just, it, it was over, it was done, and I wasn't gonna talk about it ever again, and I never did. And, and here we are, go figure. You never did until? I never did until um, I decided that it was important for me to begin to share my story. Um, because there was another one, sexual traumatic experience, right? Um, about maybe 13, 14, um, 12, 13, 14, around that age. Um, I, I attended a church that was very predominant in Harlem. Um, and while my mom was in the church meeting, I would sit outside. And for a while, I was the only child sitting in the lobby while my mother was inside having um, a meeting. This is my biological mother. Um, and then after a while, another parent brought their two sons. And one of the sons was probably a little bit younger than me, and the other one was about three, four, maybe five years older than me. Um, and unbeknownst to me, he started the grooming process. I didn't know it at the time. I just thought he was showing me extra special attention because I was alone. But what I did know is that feeling that I felt when I was seven, I felt when he would be around, touch me, hug me, whatever. So he was about 16, 17. Um, but I liked the feeling and I was getting attention. So between liking the feeling, getting the attention and recognizing the feeling, I was like, oh, okay. Cause I didn't want to be alone sitting in the lobby anymore. Um, so it went from us having conversations to me sitting on his lap, um, to one day he was like, let's, let's go explore the church. Let's explore the church. And I was like, sure. You wanna explore with me? You giving me attention? You wanna leave your little brother and go walk with me? Sure. So we went exploring in the church and we found ourselves up in the balcony of the church. So way up in the balcony of the church, in the, behind the last pew. Um, the next thing I knew, he picked my little body up, slammed it down, and he was on top of me. And I'm squirming, because now I'm like, whoa, we just supposed to be exploring the church. But I'm little, 12-year-old, bony, I wasn't even 100 pounds yet. And he put his whole teenage body on me, and I'm squeaming, I'm squirming, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm fighting. And then the next thing I know, I feel something cold 
on my temple. And I froze. And I was like, nah, this is not what I think it is. At 12, 13, I know. He puts his hand over my mouth and I'm screaming. And that's when he shows it. It's a gun. So I'm in the church, he's on top of me. He has a gun to my face. And I'm 12. And his look was, shut up, or I'ma use it. He didn't have to say it, I could tell, and he put it right back to my temple. And so as I'm, as I'm laying there, um, wow. I can see how hard it is for you to take back, for it to take you back to that place. Is it, is it as dark as it feels right now? It's not that it's dark. Like, I could still feel the gun. Like, it was cold. As I'm talking about it, wow. I said this is the first time I really spoke it out loud. So, he puts it back to my temple and he commences to unbuttoning my pants and starts to take down my pants. And all I remember doing is screaming out in my head, God help me. That's all I remember in my head. And as sure as I am talking to you now, that's how loud I said it. And God answered my prayer. And his little brother was like, hey, guys, where are you? And you could hear his brother coming up the stairs, screaming, where are you guys? I'm looking for you guys. I'm looking. And he jumps up. He like you know, puts the gun back wherever he retrieved it from, and I'm still laying on the ground. And his little brother was like, hey, what are you doing on the ground? I'm trying to pull out my pants. He's like, why are you on the ground? That's what he says to me. And the older brother was like, yeah, get up. Why are you on the ground? Why are you on the ground? And I get up, and all three of us walk back to where our parents were. And I just waited for my mom to come out. She came out, I went right to her, and I never went back again. I never. And, and that was the beginning of my sexual um, experience that wound up being years and years and years of me violating my body in ways that are undescribable. Many sexual partners, just a lot. So let, let, let me ask you this, did, did that experience create a higher level of contempt for your perpetrators immediately or did it rise over time? 
I think um, I used to always say, I say this, I used to say that, you know, I never drank, I never smoked, I never did drugs, but I was addicted to sex. That was my drug. Like I was always chasing that feeling that had awakened inside of me when I was seven, like a, like a drug addict, you know, heroin addict or cocaine addict trying to get their next fix. My next fix was that sex high that I felt when I was seven. Um, it was bad. Were, were you <laughs> able to place wow. blame, for lack of better terminology, on, on your violators, or did you put the onus on you? Um, I never, I never, like, I, well, actually, no, no. Now that I really think about it, I think I blame myself. Not that I think I blame myself, I did blame myself, because I, if I didn't, if, at seven, if I didn't leave, if I didn't go in the house, and then when I was 14, if I didn't sit on his lap, maybe I encouraged him. Um, if I didn't do that, was, that, that, that had always been my thought process. If I didn't, if I didn't, um, then I wouldn't be addicted to sex. So how did you challenge yourself to overcome your promiscuity? Um, it, took a, it was a while. Um, I, I, at one point I was just like, like, I think like a drug addict. I ain't gonna never, I ain't gonna never stop taking drugs. I ain't gonna never, I ain't gonna never stop getting high. And I had got to a point where I was just like, yo, this is who I am. See me, love me, here I am. Um, but my, my, my belief, you know, for those of you who've been watching this season, I've always constantly talked about, I'm a woman of faith. And, and, that faith has grounded me so much and has arrested my spirit and my soul because with any addiction, it feels like you are being strangled. Like it's a hold on you, like a hold on you. Whether that is addiction to pornography, whether that's addicted to heroin, whether that's addicted to eating, it feels like a chain is like choking you on the inside. And that's what this felt like. And because it was like on my soul, like it was so embedded into my soul that my faith in the one who created my soul, I knew was the only one who could heal my soul. Um, so I never really thought about it so much in how do I get rid of this? Cause I had resigned to like, oh, well, that's, this is it. Um, but when I saw it becoming really, really damaging is when I was just like, I can't do this by myself. And I just surrendered it all to God. Well, all of our experiences, they, um, they lend themselves to making us who we are now. Obviously, um, it's helped create the person that you are, the phenomenal person that you are. Um, with that being said, what was it, what was the driving force behind you being able to totally conquer that and become the person that you are now? So the main driving force is, um, I had a lot of felt, okay, I had a lot of bad relationships, right? <laughs> like, all my relationships were, wound up being really, really bad. 
And I really had a desire, like, I know I'm a good person. Like, I wanted to be married. And I was like, I had to, I really sat down and I began to evaluate something is up with me because I am the constant from each bad relationship to next bad relationship to next bad relationship to next bad Each failed relationship, I was the constant. So I could blame the other person, but if it was a different person every time and it's ending up the same way every time, then I'm not insane. You know, insanity says doing the same thing over expecting different results and there had to be something with me. So between me realizing that and between my faith and really seeing what God says about sex and sex before marriage and how it's a sin. That's the only sin you commit against yourself, right? Sex is the only sin you commit against yourself. Even masturbation, right? Because you pleasing yourself, you know where to touch it, all that, you know, we ain't gonna get into that because that's not what this show is about. But um, even that, and I, my, I had a strong desire to please my creator, God. So between realizing that I needed a makeover because I was having these bad relationships, coupled with my strong desire to please God because I knew I was a good person, but I still was having these bad relationships, so something, something was up. And loving God so much that I just wanted to please him so that was the natural and the supernatural coming together to make this explosive force of the show and the season to put it on stage for everyone else. Well, your faith is commendable and it's apparently, you know, it oozes through the pores of your being. What advice would you recommend in terms of someone else dealing with the same circumstances or the like? Um, how would they be able to forge through based on your story? So I'm going to say my story, I guess, would be unique because if you watched the season, you would hear some of the women who said they wrote to their perpetrators. You heard some of the women say they went to counseling. You heard some women say that they just learned how to forgive the individual, so, and different people have had to do something outside of themselves to get to a place of um, healing or having a conversation. But for me, I did counseling, I was like, that's not for me. I didn't want to write anybody because I was always of the belief, you write it down, somebody gonna find out and they gonna do something to it, they gonna put it on blast, I really wasn't feeling that. So those pieces weren't for me. Um, and so if those pieces don't work, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that you can do. I'm not a counselor, but I'm, there's counselors out there. But for me, it was my strong faith in God and just getting into the word and, you know, um, finding a pastor that you could trust, finding a church that you could trust where you could be loved back to life. That's the best way I could say it. Me, um, reading the word and understanding the scripture you know, I wasn't into that, oh, the white man wrote the Bible. That's not my conversation today. What worked for me, what helped me, is understanding the scriptures and applying them into my life, finding a good church, finding a good pastor, and, and so that she could, so that I could be loved back to life. 
That's what worked for me. And so counseling may work for you. Writing the, your abuser may work for you. Um, but for me, you may need the one who created your soul to come in and do a full makeover so it could work for you. So that's, that's my, my, what I offer you. Well, this is an unrelated question, but one I must ask nonetheless. What does the Dr. Riley of today tell the seven-year-old her and the 12-year-old her? And is that the same answer for both? So Dr. Riley would tell the seven-year-old, stay in the yard. <laughs> no, but uh, um, Dr. Riley would tell the seven-year-old, um, trust your instincts. Trust your God-knower. I call it a God-knower now. That's how I teach my daughters. Trust your God-knower. That, that sm still small voice is something that God put there. Trust your God-knower because I knew not to go. I knew it here, even if I didn't know what was going on. I knew it, and I overrode that voice. And I overrode it again when I was 12, so I didn't trust the instinct that is placed inside all of us. Um, and so, and, and, and it was, you know, and you may ask, why did I not trust it? Because you didn't, you may, yeah, I can say, you didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. But it was a need to feel accepted, right? So I wanted to be accepted by the big sisters. I wanted to be accepted by the, the guys that were there. And so, um, whether, whatever it is, trust your God knower. Little seven-year-old. And would that be the same thing for the 12-year-old as well? Mm -hmm. Trust your God knower, little 12-year-old. And that's what I tell my daughters. Trust your God knower. Because you're not going to know everything, but everyone can attest. You, you feel the energy. You feel the vibe. You know it. Something ain't right. You, just, you may not be able to tell what is not right. You may not be able to put your finger on it. But that, I call it the God knower, so trust it. And the more you ignore your God knower, the less it, effective it becomes. So, and, but the more you listen, the more you're able to develop it. Um, and it'll keep you safe. Keep you safe. Are you or have you been in contact with any of your violators since? So my seven-year-old violator, I probably, I, if I saw him on the street today, I wouldn't know who he was, what he looked like. I don't remember what his name is. Um, I don't, I, I don't even know. Um, but my my twelve-year-old violator, unfortunately, he um, was murdered, and so he's not um, here anymore. When you found out that information, what did it do to you? I was like, what? I mean, my first initial reaction was like, yeah, that's what he get. But then I had to stop. You know, you know, karma is. I could finish that one, right? But then I had to stop and I said, wow. I mean, nobody, nobody wants to have their life lost. But because of who I am and where I was in my life, I just prayed that hopefully God, he changed his life and he gave his life to you. That, that, was, that was my thought after my initial reaction. I was like, that's right, that's right. It was a breath of fresh air, but I still was like, oh my gosh, I hope he made right with Jesus. Well, in that line of thought process, me asking what would you have told the younger you, I, I turned the table and asked, what would you say 
if you had an opportunity to speak to your abusers, what would you say? Oh, so you, you, you really want to ask me that question? <laughs> what would I say to the abusers? So am I, am I, am I who I am yes. now? Yes. Okay, if I, who I am now, I don't even know. I never even thought about that. I don't even think I want to have a conversation with them. Like, I don't even, if I had to, I mean, thinking about it right now, I don't even know if I want to be in that space. Trust me, I've released them. Uh, for me to even be talking about this, you can tell that I've released it. I've, I've given it. But I don't know if I can, um, I don't know. Hopefully express uh, later day. Um, is there any other information that you would like to share with your audience that you haven't shared? Um, yeah, so this whole process that uh, this whole journey that you guys have been on with us this entire season um, is for you to heal um, and for us to heal because all of the women so far, including myself, have gone through this transformative process through sharing our stories. Um, I, I, I've connected to this term called the wounded healer. Um, it's an archetype that um, psychologist Jung has Carl Jung has brought to the surface. And I've attached to that phrase, the wounded healer. And the premise is those of us who have been wounded now are helping to heal. So it is my hope, it is my desire that through my trials and through the women's trials and the man, his trial as well, has been a place of healing. We've all been wounded, but we're offering it to you all as an opportunity to heal. And so um, it takes courage, you see me, to do this. So I offer you the opportunity to be courageous too. Thank you for sharing, Doctor. You're phenomenal. Love you all. This is my life's work, trust me. Um, and I give myself and my heart to you. So if you um, have any questions, reach out. If you wanna share your stories, reach out. Um, but I'm phenomenal because I've been able to take my mess, turn it into a message, take my trials and turn it into triumph, and you can too. Peace. No longer bound by insecurities. Mm -hmm. Compare myself to no one else. I love the way my God made me. Open my mouth and shout praise to thee. Where I was once held bound, Jesus, you set me free. Now I'm not afraid of midnight. Shadows and darkness flee from my light. My prayer, my praise make this atmosphere right for a midnight. Miracle. Welcome to the Dr. Riley Show. We just got one episode left of season one of the Ask Dr. Riley Show. And this one is the reunion. I'm your host, Dr. Anissa Riley.